have you ever looked at the Democrat Party and just wonder, how insane are you? How dumb can you be? And ask yourself, how did they get that way? What happened to the Democrat Party? Well, that's what this video attempts to answer. And yes, if this video ever goes viral, somehow manages to get past the social media censorship, the left is going to attack this relentlessly. And you know what? I already know pretty much how they're going to attack it, and I'm going to address that up front. And with this video, no, it's not going to be highly produced. It's going to be pretty raw, and there are going to be some long clips. So just kind of bear with me because I'm focused more on the information than I am on the presentation. And we'll discuss in this video or on this show what the left will do to attack this video. And then we'll discuss what happened and how it happened to the Democrat Party. But as we discuss that, we also got to recognize the contributions to the craziness by some of the Republicans. And while we focus on the rhino class, those who are in office, they work against us every time they side with the Democrat Party and seemingly undermine every agenda item of Republican and conservatives. Those are easy targets. Those we can point out very easily and go off and attack and call them out. But there is another group of Republicans that we need to address. And these are harder to identify because they do go forth and push conservative policies. They do go ahead and try to engage in good economic policies and generally say the right things. But they don't seem to know or understand what's going on. They don't understand today's Democrat Party. I mean, how many times have we come across a situation, whether it's social media censorship, critical race theory, transgenderism, 1619, how many times have we in the conservative base gone through and started sounding the alarms, pointing out the red flags, going, hey, we got a problem here. If we don't nip this in the butt, it's going to be pretty disastrous. And it falls on deaf ears. They don't seem to understand what we're talking about. They don't notice. And then suddenly, when the Democrats hit critical mass of momentum, they come out full bore. And suddenly, suddenly, the ones who are jolted out of shock, out of their slumber, are shocked, shocked about what's going on. And we see this now with all the Republicans coming out against critical race theory, 1619, speaking out against social media censorship, and we're all out there cheering them on. But where were they last year? Where were they in 2019, 2018, 17, 16? Where were they all these years that we were going off sounding the alarm? It's only when the left finally comes out full swinging that they suddenly realize what we've been telling them all this time. And this is an issue here with it. And I've been trying to identify what the problem is. And it seems to be a combination of complacency and blissful ignorance, blissful unawareness. When we try to go through and maybe during a town hall, ask them about it, they don't seem to know what we're talking about. They, you know, kind of dismiss it, brush it off, maybe address it quickly and move on. They don't have a clue what's going on, and they don't want a clue what's going on. 
because understanding the problem means actually addressing and trying to fix it, which means having to deal with a lot of crazy leftists attacking you. So it's a lot easier to just try and ignore the problem. And by doing that, the Republican Party has, well, missed a lot of opportunities to push back, stomp out, and crush what is going on with the insanity of the left before it got to this point where now we're fighting an uphill battle trying to push back against complete and total insanity. All right, now how is the left going to try to attack this video? Well, that is very easy. First off, they're going to try and claim this is debunked. You know, this is not reality, and this has been fact-checked and, you know, fact-checked false. Now, these are the same people uh, who have been caught lying to you, who flip-flop on every issue, you know, will tell you something has been a debunked lie in one week and then come back and tell you, no, 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 it's true. It's just, you know, and give kind of a bogus explanation, if any. You know, flip-flop and hope you don't notice. These are the people who lie repeatedly, get caught on video bragging about how they lie. And then they will try and refer to the fact-checkers. You know, the appeal to authority, you know, the appeal to those who really research this issue. But we know the fact-checkers are full of crap. You remember that fact-check that said, you know, it's been debunked. There is no evidence that the coronavirus started in a lab in Wuhan. And now they're having to come back and correct that. The media and the fact-checkers, they're not there to be informative. They're there, as Don Lemon has let out, to solely help the Democrats. And they're going to change their story, change their narrative, or make whatever statement or claim that they need in order to fit the political expediency of the day. So we already know that the media is full of crap. I mean, what was it, uh, Grabian, uh, when it came to the media on the coronavirus, how at first they downplayed it, said it's nothing to worry about. Even the CDC, or not the CDC, but the World Health Organization said it's not human-to-human transmissible, and we can trust them. This is nothing but maybe, you know, a mild cold. And then suddenly, when it became politically expedient, they flipped the script, and then they go off and push hardcore the exact opposite way, overinflating the threat of the coronavirus and then claiming that it was the Republicans and Donald Trump that downplayed the coronavirus when it was them who downplayed and basically ensured that everybody on their side would engage in action that would spread it as far and wide as possible. So we know that they're going to attack this and we know they have no trustworthiness or credibility. But one of the things that they're going to go off while they're attacking this is they're going to try and say, it's a conspiracy theory. Interesting, a conspiracy theory. And they say that because what's the first thing that comes to mind? What what is the very first thing that comes to mind to you when you hear the word conspiracy? You think about all the people and tinfoil hats talking about aliens. Although... Depending on how the Pentagon report comes out, those people might uh, be vindicated after all. We'll see about that, right? All right. I can make a lot of jokes about that, but, you know, based off of how that goes, but that, that is the general impression, and that is designed. That is by design that that, that that is the impression that you get someone in a tinfoil hat who's crazy. But let's actually take a look at what a conspiracy is. 
According to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the act of conspiring together, an agreement among conspirators, a group of conspirators. All right, and then it kind of puts it into context. But it just basically means two or more people engaging in an action towards a goal, towards something. All right, that, that's all it means. Now, while we go through and we talk about that, you know, the left will try and add to that definition. Well, it has to be an illegal act. That, that, that's the definition of conspiracy. Well, is what I'm saying illegal? No. Now, if it turns out that the government covered up UFOs and aliens all these decades, was that illegal? No. So there isn't a legal component. The legality of a conspiracy is whether it was any, uh, an, uh, conspiracy to break the law or, a con- or just a conspiracy to do something. But then they'll go off and say, well, a conspiracy involves an evil intent. Add that on. You know, not just two people conspiring or having an agreement to work towards an action. They'll say it has to have an evil intent. So, okay, so it doesn't need a legality, but it has an evil intent. Okay, so let me bring up a conspiracy here based off of the definition. Do you think there's two or more people working together, conspiring together, to promote and expand abortions throughout the United States? Okay. Now, is abortion the mass murder of babies? Yes. So by definition, even by their own definition, if you put intent by it, the abortion movement is a conspiracy. That's how, that's how plain and simple the conspiracy is. That's all, that's all that matters. Two or more people conspiring towards something, working towards something. In fact, you can even say every election campaign, every business involves a conspiracy, right? Now, if you want to go off and base it off of an immoral attempt, uh, then I would say all the entire abortion movement is a conspiracy. But of course, that also kind of depends, doesn't it, on what you consider evil. To the left, the mass murder of babies is not evil. So they would say that's not a conspiracy. So the second component is kind of in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? And the left wants to determine whether or not something is evil and whether or not something isn't. And yet, even after I go off and I explain that, anytime you hear the word conspiracy, you're still going to hear or picture someone in a tinfoil hat. And that is by design. And that is how the left is going to try and attack this video. Okay? And... I'm going to be going through, like I said, showing you the clips of what and how it happened, and then going through and providing uh, the examples and the outcomes today. And so another thing that we need to understand is that the Democrat Party that we are dealing with today is not the same as the Democrat Party of 50, 60, 80 years ago. I mean, there, there, there is this one issue where everyone brings up, you know, how the Democrats, and I've made this mistake too, the Democrats, they're the party of slavery, the party of KKK, the party of Jim Crow laws. And yes, that is part of the party's history. 
But if you listen to the Democrats and they go out there and they talk about how they're not the same political party, they've changed. They've let you know that, yes, they have changed, just not in the way they want you to believe. They still engage in the racism, the hatred, and the bigotry, which is why it's so easy to mistake them for the political party of the past. What you got to understand is the change. The change is the underlying motivation. In the past, they engaged in racism, hatred, and bigotry because they actually bought into and believed in racial superiority. Today, they do it as a political tool to divide and conquer, keep us distracted, while, so, while they go off and do what they're really attempting to do, while they go off and achieve their actual goals. It's just a tool, a means to an end. So the motivational structure has changed, even though the actions are largely the same, okay? And so I just want you to keep that in mind. And I also want you to understand that the Democrat Party today didn't just happen overnight. There wasn't a sudden shift. And that's why it had gone so largely unnoticed. It's kind of like that old parable that if you put a frog in boiling water, it will sense the heat and immediately jump out. But put them in water at room temperature and only gradually turn up the heat, not noticing the difference, will be lured to its death. Right? And you got to understand that. And Dan Bongino points out quite often that an enemy is not vanquished if they do not think it's so. And that is true. But you also got to add that or add to that those who do not learn from history will find an old enemy returned and be surprised by it. All right, maybe I need to work on my statements and my parables a little bit. So I just wanted to go off and provide that up front because I know exactly how the left is going to attack this video. So now let's go ahead and get in to the meat and potatoes, as they say. And I have this divided up where I'm going to show what happened to the Democrat Party, how they became so insane, the what and the how. And for this, I'm going to go back into the historical archives, going back to an interview back in uh, 1984 where a Soviet defector, and yes, what we are talking about here is the Marxism and the Leninism. And if you don't believe them that this is backed by Marxists, well, then you haven't been paying attention because Black Lives Matter is openly stating how they were Marxists. They had it on their website. Marxism is at the base of their ideology, and they're not afraid to openly declare it. They're not afraid to let you know. Marxism and Leninism. But how did Marxism and Leninism take hold, and what tactics were used? And so... There is a video uh, from 1984, an interview that's gone on. I've cut it up into clips, and I'm going to go through those clips one by one and show you how that is today, how exactly what he said they do and the effects of it is exactly what we see today. And then there's another video uh, that was produced in the 1960s talking about how the Marxists and the Leninists work, where they warned that the biggest threat about Marxism and Leninism is not the ideology itself, right? That is not the biggest concern that we have to work. I mean, yes, it is a concern, 
But that is not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is the Leninism part, the organizational structure of how they managed to get a foothold and implement the Marxism part of this. So, yes, these videos get a little bit old, but let's actually go through and examine the claims and then examine the Democrats today. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the first video. Well, you spoke several times before about ideological subversion. That is a phrase that uh, I'm afraid some Americans don't fully understand. When uh, the Soviets use the phrase ideological subversion, what do they mean by it? Ideological subversion is, is the process which is legitimate, overt, and open. You, you can see it with your own eyes. All, all you have to do, all American mass media has to do is to unplug their bananas from their ears, open up their eyes, and they can see it. There is no mystery. There is nothing to do with espionage. I know that espionage intelligence gathering looks more romantic. It sells more deodorants through the advertising, probably. That's why your Hollywood producers are so crazy about James Bond type of, of, of thrillers. But in reality, the main emphasis of the KGB is not in the area of it intelligence at all. According to my uh, opinion and opinion of many defectors of my caliber, only about 15% of time, money, and manpower is spent on espionage as such. The other 85% is a slow process which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, activne meropriatia in the language of, of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing uh, process which goes very slow and it's divided in, in four basic stages. Uh, the first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students in the country of, of, of your enemy exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or counterbalanced by the basic values of Americanism, American patriotism. The result, the result you can see, most of the people who graduated in the 60s, dropouts or half-baked intellectuals, are now occupying the positions of power in the government, civil service, business, mass media, educational system. You are stuck with them. You cannot get rid of them. They are contaminated. They are programmed to think and react to certain stimuli in a certain pattern. You cannot change their mind. Even if you, if you expose them to authentic information, even if you prove that white is white and black is, uh, is black, you still cannot change the basic perception and the logic of behavior. In other words, these people, uh, uh, the process of demoralization is complete and irreversible. Okay, so let's go ahead and break that down. Cultural subversion. The primary target of cultural subversion is the school system. Now, why is it the school system? Well, because the teachers are unchallenged. They get to control the narrative of the curriculum. 
And the students have no choice but to sit there. They're a captive audience. And they control the tests. And so the students have to regurgitate what they are told or they get bad grades. And you can control it to expose them to Marxist-Leninist views and take away the counter, the Americanism, the capitalism, the free market democracy. Right? So you get that imbalance, and plus you're at the impressionable minds going from first through 12, you know, K through 12 uh, education system. Right? And then he said it takes a minimum of 20 years for the first generation of kids, you know, which he pointed out in the 60s. Right? Which, of course, means that those kids who graduate, you know, in the schools that they went through will go on. And what do they do? Well, they're going to replace retirees and business and government and so forth. Right? But if we start at the 60s being the point where the first round was completed, and then they, some of them at least, go into the education field, well, now you got more schools. And then you got a second round, which would have been completed in the 80s. And then you get the third round off, off of this 20-year process, which would have been in the 2000s. Now, if you take a look at the pace in which the left has gone completely and totally insane, at about the year 2000 is when they went over the deep end, really started getting crazy, and the 2010s is, woo, that's when they lost it completely because they hit critical mass. And they have occupied so much of government by now. Right? So you got that. They target the school system for a very specific reason. And, and let's take a look at today's school system. The demoralization. All right. So we take a look at today's school system. What are they doing? They're teaching kids uh, very young, all the way down first grade and kindergarten about transgenderism, trying to say that, hey, there's no such thing as a boy and a girl. And the process is so complete as he said, that no amount of data and information will work. They can't process it. They can't understand it. You know, they if it doesn't meet with what they've been indoctrinated to, there's no way for them to comprehend any data. And take a look at today's leftists. You can prove to them that, hey, this is a boy, this is a girl. That every And you can prove scientifically, everyone with an XX chromosome has this developmental features, these internal sexual organs, these, and grow up with these physical characteristics. And everybody with an XY chromosome has these, and they are different. 100% of the XX chromosomes have these features. 100% of the XY chromosomes have these features. You can show them biology. You can show them difference in uh, hormonal levels, skeletal structures, uh, different organs internally. And it does not matter, no matter how much evidence, no matter how much you produce, they cannot comprehend anymore the difference between a boy and a girl. And then take a look at the curriculum, the 1619 Project, the critical race theory. They are going back and rewriting history and creating a narrative to cast America as the evil, the great evil, as an immoral evil, born of evil, irreparably and irredeemably evil, is the narrative. Teaching people to grow up and hate the country. Why? Well, we'll get to that uh, in a little bit, but, well, the full motivation, but we know that they want to remove the Constitution and replace the government. 
You're not going to get that uh, unless people view it as irredeemably evil. So there is that demoralization. And plus, we could also take a look at the transgenderism movement. They're forcing boys into girls' locker rooms, gym class, forcing them that, forcing girls to have to allow men to be in the locker room with them while they're naked, showering together, and then going off and telling them that if they disagree with it, if they don't want the boys in there showering with them, then they're the intolerant bigots. And if you're a high school boy, hey, this is a great time. All you have to do is claim to be uh, a transgendered lesbian. That way you have an excuse to be in the locker room and why you still prefer sexually with other women. You know, but you get that in total demoralization and the complete inability to process facts. Now, transgenderism is the one that sticks out most prominently, but we could take a look at a lot of other information. You know, whether it's from, you know, uh, you know climate change to, you know, um, how, how the media is proven and with example after example after example to be a bunch of propagandists. We can show them on just about every major issue of the day. Heck, take a look at abortion, no matter how much evidence you produce, showing, hey, this is a person. It has its own separate DNA. It has its own separate organs. It has its own body, right? They cannot comprehend that that is a life. You can show them heartbeats, and they can't comprehend that it's a life. No amount of data works. It's impenetrable. And if you have to, go back and rewatch that clip. And you understand why it is that the left has no perception of reality left, can't come to any sensible or reasonable conclusions, and no matter how much data you provide them, they can't process it. They can't understand it. They can't come to a reasonable, intelligent conclusion about it. It's also why... When you take a look at the Democrats, let me take the Israeli and Palestine issue. The Palestines and Hamas attack Israel. Israel responds. Who do they blame? Israel. Why? Why are they attacking the people defending themselves? Any logical view of the situation goes, well, they're defending themselves. Why did the other side attack? But you're not allowed to ask why the other side attacked, and they don't want to talk about that. In their view, Israel not rolling over and dying makes them bad. And they can't process how bad that is. The, to them, they think that is just perfectly acceptable. Right? And it also explains why they keep pushing this two-state solution, even though it's been a failed policy, and the Palestinians have rejected getting their own state five different times. And yet they continue on the same actions continuing to do the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result. Insanity. I mean, do I need to go through here and talk about the, or give any more examples here about how after going through the public school system, now it hasn't gone to every school, you know, because, well, we're a pretty large country. But I can, can you see here from the examples how through the public school system, the demoralization and the indoctrination leading to the inability to live in reality, come to sensible conclusions, no matter how much evidence that you provide them, does appear to be what happened. 
Now the left's going to go, there is no evidence of any KGB, uh, you know, uh, action programs or anything to support this. That is going to be one of the attacks on this video, right? Especially on this particular segment and throughout all the videos that I go through. Well, here's the thing. Whether it was the KGB or someone else doesn't matter to me. The fact is it happened. And let me give you an example here. Remember the OK symbol? How that started off as just a trolling on 4chan? How people came up with it just to troll the left and everything, and then the left bought into it. They looked at it, and all of a sudden they adopted it as a white supremacy symbol. And it doesn't matter to them how it got started as a joke, as a trolling effort, as just a trolling meme. It doesn't matter to them how it got started. They still adopted the tactics and implemented it. They still adopted and spread it. And they still go along with it. So whether it was the KGB who came up with this or somebody watching this video went, hey, that's actually pretty smart. You know, years ago and actually just went ahead and adopted it themselves. It doesn't matter how it got started. It's just that it's what happened. By all available evidence, by all observational evidence of the left, it's clear. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into clip number two, you know, which goes off and talks about why it was so easy to target the schools and target the professors, the teachers, and basically uh, the next few clips explains who they targeted and why. And I'll give you a hint. They targeted leftists. All right, so here we go. Let's take a look at the first group that they targeted and why they targeted them. This is the first stage of befriending a professor. You can see myself on the left with the same James Bond smile. On, my, on the right is my KGB supervisor, Comrade Leonid Mitrokhin, and in the middle, a professor of political science in Delhi University. The next stage would be to invite him to a gathering of Indo-Soviet Friendship Society. There he is sitting next to his wife before he is being sent to USSR for free trip. Everything is paid by the Soviet government. He was made to believe that he is invited to USSR because he is a talented, sober-thinking intellectual. Absolutely false. He is invited because he is a useful idiot, because he would agree and subscribe to most of the Soviet propaganda cliché. And when he is coming back to, to his own country, he is going for years and years to teach the beauties of Soviet socialism to uh, newer and newer generations of his students thus promoting the Soviet propaganda line. Okay, so the first group of people that they decided they wanted to target were the educators, the professors, and the teachers. Why? They wanted to go after people who have overinflated egos, which happens to be the trend with everybody that they targeted. Overinflated egos, where all you have to do was do a little bit of butt kissing because of they already are self-absorbed and have overvalued their importance. You know, but with a little bit of butt kissing and putting on a little show for them, they'll go, uh-huh, man, these people are great. These people are awesome. And then go back to a classroom where they control the narrative, where they control the uh, the teachings and 
They can shut down any attempts to challenge them on their teachings. They control the tests, and you either regurgitate what they say or you fail. So you got the educational institution with the power to destroy someone's career through bad grades if they don't just go ahead along with what you say, and you control the entire narrative without anybody pushing back. And college professors, the academic types, are so self-absorbed, so overconfident in their intelligence, and that they are smarter than everybody else, that they are some of the most useful idiots that you can find. Now, it's interesting to note here, when we take a look at the university structure, we have people claiming to be experts, teaching on the subject that never actually did it themselves. You know, my dad always said, those who can do, do. Those who can't, teach. Do you think there's a whole lot of professors talking about business and economics that actually held a job in the private sector doing business and economics? No, they're just teaching their theories. And how are their theories shaped? Well, just by their personal opinions and political views. It's not that what they are teaching in the classroom they've actually implemented with any success out in the real world. So it's easy for them to just go ahead and modify and, you know, change the narrative of whatever it is they teach. These are the arrogant, self-absorbed people to which they can go off and make anything they they say talk endlessly to other people with absolutely no pushback. All right. So that is the first group of people. And of course, that also means targeting maybe some of the teachers, you know, in the K through 12. You know, uh, but it's easier to target university professors because they put out work publicly. So it's easier to go off and target them and going, well, we, we were inspired by this thing that you wrote. You are a truly deep thinker. You're among the smartest and the elite. Hey, you want to take a trip over here and then just butt kiss them for about a week. And then all of a sudden they will promote you to endlessly year after year after year. Yeah. The academics. Okay. Now you take a look at college campuses today. What do you see? You see a lot of teachers promoting Marxism and Leninism. You see how they're going off and, you know, trying to go off and say, hey, guess what? Trying to get the right answer on a math test is racist. That's how far they've gone. That's all. That that's how insane they've gone, and the ideological subversion, and then going off and trying to say it's racist to try and get a right answer on a math test. Now, who started coming up with that idea? Interesting, you know. But you go through the classrooms, and we've seen the recordings. I mean, you can go on Google and say, "Hey, student uh, records uh, professor," and what do they teach in there? Any, in fact, anybody who's been to college, right, has a degree. I have a degree. You know, I went to uh, college. It was Iowa State University that I went to. I majored in business management, right? And so anybody who's been there can see the Marxism. Of course, that's assuming that you were paying attention politically to what was going on. But... Anybody who's been in any classroom anywhere knows what is going on and take a look at where all of this started. 
You know, we could talk about how they targeted the K through 12, but they also massively went off to target the universities and the professors first. I mean, all academia now leans left and they're all promoting Marxist views. Can you debunk that? Can you debunk how that they promote Marxism? No. We can all see it clearly. All right. So, I mean, we go through, we got that. He has, you know, his presentation. He's going through. And remember, this was back in 1984. 1984. We were being warned about what was going on, about the plans for ideological subversion. And then we see here, you know, it was in a recent article. And I've already covered this article where a university professor came out and talked about how they are screening uh, professors, you know, uh, for initial hire and university staff uh, at initial hire and whether or not they get tenure for ideological views, you know, for ideological compliance. And if you don't comply with them, then you are tossed out. Do you think that just happened overnight? I mean, this is supposed to be colleges and universities, higher education, uh, where people learn and develop new ideas and debate those ideas. And yet all of that is squashed for conformity to leftism. Hmm. Interesting. But it continues. Professors were not the only ones that were targeted. They had another group that they went after as well. So let's go ahead and take a look at who else they decided to target. Did any of the journalists have the uh, curiosity to ask about uh, prisons and that kind of thing? Yes. They were in Siberia. This yes. is what you associate. Some of, yes. Some of them asked questions, and naturally we, we would give them, the, for the stupid question, we give them stupid answer. No, there are no prisons in Siberia. No, most of the people who, are, who you see are free citizens of USSR. They are very happy to be here. Uh, and, and they are contributing to the glory of the socialist system. Uh, some of them pretended that they, they believe what, what I was uh, telling them. And um, most of them, we may discuss it later, what are the motivations of these people? Why would they stubbornly bring lies to their own population through their own mass media? I have various answers to this. There is not a single explanation. It's a complex of explanations. It's fear, pure biological fear. They understand that they are on the territory of an enemy state, a police state. And just to save their rotten skins and their miserable jobs, their affluence back home, they would prefer to tell a lie than to, to ask truthful questions and, and report truthful information. Second, most of these schmucks were uh, afraid to lose their jobs because, obviously, if you tell truth about my country, you will not last long as a correspondent of New York Times uh, or, or Los Angeles Times. They will fire you. What kind of correspondent are you? You obviously cannot find common language with Russians if they kick you out in 24 hours. So just by, by trying to be conformist to their own editorial bosses, they tried not to offend the sentiments of the Soviet administrators and people like myself. Deep inside, I hope they would insult my, uh, or offend my sentiments. Obviously, they preferred not to. Uh, another reason, uh, I, did, I, I refuse to believe it, but obviously, there is another reason. Obviously, it's a greed. These people earn a lot of money. When they come back to USA, 
They claim that they are experts in my country. They write books which sells a million copies, titled like Russians, The Truth About Russia. Most of it is lie about Russia. Yet they claim to be Sovietologists. They, they, bring, they play back myths about my country, the propaganda cliches. Yet they are stubbornly resist a, a, the word of truth. If a, a person like Solzhenitsyn is either defecting or kicked out of USSR, they try all their best to, dis, to discredit him and to discourage him. I don't have much chance to appear on national network uh, with a true story about my country. But a useful idiot like Hendrik Smith or Robert Kaiser, they are big heroes. They come back from USSR. They say, oh, we were talking to dissidents in Russia. Big deal. Soviet dissidents are chasing American correspondents in the streets. And they are cowardly escaping from these contacts. For some strange reason, if you want to know more about Spain, you refer to Spanish writers. If you want to learn more about French, you read French or writers. Even about Antarctica, I bet you would read Penguins. <laughs> Only about the Soviet Union, for some strange reason, you read Hendrix and Schmendrix and all kinds of Kissingers. Because they claim that they know more about my country. They know nothing or next to nothing. Or they pretend that they know more than they actually do. So there is a lot to unpack there. They target the media be, uh, because they target fear, ego, and greed. So let's talk about those three things. Fear. It makes a lot of sense that if you're on a foreign soil as a foreign correspondent in an authoritarian government, and you know that if you write something that upsets them, you could mysteriously go missing or a mugging gone wrong. Right? So there is fear. So they soft pedal the truth. They downplay what's going on. And then the readers of that article go, oh, this isn't as bad as I thought it would be. Hey, they're not as evil as I thought. You know, and we could take a look at that, you know, not just, you know, Soviet Russia, but we could take a look at that throughout Middle Eastern countries, who they decide to attack and who they decide to say, hey, they're not so bad as foreign correspondents. If the regime is authoritarian and murderous, they downplay it. And then that creates a perception in the readers, especially on the younger minds, who are more along lines of, well, you know, maybe, they, maybe they're not so bad. Hey, you know, some of their things, you know, about, hey, the government gives everybody money, distributes for all their need, that doesn't sound too bad. It doesn't matter whether or not it works. And soft-pedaling the truth in order to avoid offending the government out of fear of their own lives, you know, begins a process of change, changing the views of a country. You know, and what's going on and shapes the perception of what's happening. But there is more to it than that. It's the affluence, the ego, and the greed. All right. So we take a look at the affluence. All right. And let me use an example for today. If people in the left wing media suddenly came out and started reporting on Black Lives Matter as a violent domestic terrorist organization, point out about the looting and the arsonist, you know, burning down buildings, right? If they came out and just went after them, what do you think would happen? Black Lives Matter would target them. They would start going after, trying to engage in boycotts. They would go after, uh, you know, of course, the advertisers, yes. And then they would make a complete ruckus about that person 
and the corporate executives afraid of, hey, you know, you know, these people are making a lot of noise, you know, because they were offended, you know, and start making trouble for that outlet, for that publication, what would happen? They get fired. You're, you, you were too hard on them. You created too much of a disturbance. And so we're going to fire you, right? And that is too much of a risk for them, you know, because they enjoy out of their own ego, seeing themselves on TV each and every night, having the influence of however many viewers are tuning into them. But on the other side, if they engage in reporting designed to not offend them, right? And they know that we on the conservative right, we don't engage in violence. We don't engage in boycotts. We may mock them, but we don't try and target their careers. Right? So take a look at what the actual reporting was. Mostly peaceful protests. Right? They were trying to avoid offending a certain group when reporting on their actions and behaviors so that that group wouldn't try and target their careers and get them fired. What perception does that provide for the viewers? Downplaying the violence. Mostly peaceful protests, as they say. Or if the left, you know, their base is very much anti-Trump and they go out there and they talk about Trump honestly and say, hey, yeah, you know, he's doing a good job here, you know, on the economy. Hey, he's actually doing fairly well on the leadership of the coronavirus task force, yada, yada, that their audience would be pissed off and they would go off and go, hey, you know what? I'm going to leave this and I'm going to go to someone who's going to tell me what it is I want to hear. So instead of sticking to the truth in objective journalism, because they want to keep their jobs and see themselves on TV, they that's where we get the lies and the propaganda. That's how we get the undercover videos of CNN producers going, admitting that they are pushing out false information, that they are pushing out propaganda, and it's designed to help the Democrats. They're playing to an audience rather than reporting objective facts because they want to stay on TV and so they got to play to the audience to ensure they keep the viewers because there's a lot of competition in network news. Same thing in the newspaper. You know, we've seen a lot of journalists get fired just because one group didn't like them being critical of them because they didn't like how they phrased something because they didn't give them glowing coverage. So they attacked them as racist and bigoted or whatever, created a controversy over that person to get them fired. And these are a group of people that love seeing their name and the bylines and love the pay. So out of ego and fear of their jobs over people targeting them, if they report truthfully, they change their coverage. They play. They deliberately will lie to you in order to appease them, knowing that the other side won't try and target their careers. You know, which, you know, we can debate whose fault that really is, but, you know, these people are spineless, so they'll adjust their coverage however they need. And then the third part is greed. You know, it's interesting because they're still doing the same thing here where they pretend that they're an expert on something and then write a book about it. And then they go along all the left-wing media and sell a bunch of copies. I mean, heck, even take a look at James Comey. He came out, 
you know, and started attacking uh, President Trump. Uh, he wrote a book. Well, didn't start attacking uh, Trump, but, you know, he investigated Trump, so he became a hero on the left. He wrote a book pushing his false claims, pushing lies about the investigation, a baseless investigation. That book sold money. He got rich. You know, and we see this throughout. You know, you play to the audience, right? And so we see this between left-wing writers all the time. They see what the left wants to hear. They write about that, put it in a book, and then shove it to them. And it doesn't matter if the book is filled with lies. They produce it. And so it's the greed. Hey, if we tell people what they want to hear rather than tell them what the truth is, they're going to spend a lot of money making us rich. Hey, there we go. So there's where you target the media because they are greedy, egotistical, and if they're on foreign soil, easy to intimidate. Think about that. Now, I'm not saying the right isn't uh, guilty of peddling books all over the place, you know, but at least they try to provide some factual basis, at least for the most part. So, I mean, I get it. They could try and make the counter accusation, but we on the right, we're not insane. We have the ability to still process data information and come to sensible conclusions. All right, so you know they target professors and academics, and then they target the media because they're ego, ego and greedy. But they're not the only ones that the left targets. They target other groups, other groups that happen to be mostly dominated by the left. So what other group do they target? Well, see for yourself. They were idealistically minded leftists who uh, made several visits to USSR, and yet the KGB decided that come revolution or drastic changes in political structure of India, they will have to go. Why is that? Because they know too much. Simply because, you see, the useful idiots, the the leftists who are idealistically believing in the beauty of Soviet socialist or communist or whatever system, when they get disillusioned, they become the worst enemies. That's why my KGB instructors specifically made the point, never bother with leftists. Forget about these political prostitutes. Aim higher. This was my instruction. Try to get into... into, uh, Large circulation, established conservative media, rich, filthy rich movie makers, intellectuals, so-called academic circles, cynical, egocentric people who can look into your eyes with angelic expression and tell you a lie. These are the most recruitable people, people who lack moral principles, who are either too greedy or too uh, suffer from self-importance. They feel that uh, they, they matter a lot. Uh, these are the people who KGB wanted very much to recruit. But or, to eliminate the others, to execute the others, don't they serve some purpose? Wouldn't they be no, the ones they, they rely they on? They serve purpose only at the stage of destabilization of a nation. For example, your leftists in the United States, all these professors and all these beautiful civil rights defenders, they are instrumental in the process of the, of the uh, uh, subversion only to destabilize the nation. When their job is completed, they are, not, they are not needed anymore. They know too much. Some of them, when they get disillusioned, when they see that Marxist-Lenin has come to power, they, obviously they get offended. They think that they will come to power. That will never happen.
have you lined up against the wall and shot. They may turn into the most bitter enemies of Marxist-Leninists when they come to power. And that's what happened in Nicaragua. You remember most of these uh, former Marxist-Leninists were either put to prison or one of them split and now he's working against Sandinistas. It happened in, in uh, uh, Grenada when Maurice Bishop was he was already a Marxist. He was executed by, by a new Marxist who was more Marxist than this Marxist. Same happened in Afghanistan when uh, first there was Taraki. He was killed by Amin. Then Amin was killed by Babrak Karman with the help of KGB. Same happened in, in Bangladesh when Mujibur Rahman, very pro-Soviet leftist, was assassinated by his own Marxist-Leninist military comrade. Now, I know, I know, I know, I know. He said the word conservative. But is anybody really going to go through and say that Hollywood is conservative? Or that the education system is conservative? Or that the media, by and large, is conservative? No, no, the way he was just saying is bypass the low-level political prostitutes and try to get into people with much larger influence, much larger reach. And you notice everywhere they go, they always point out that the left, the Democrats, leftists, they're always the ones who are the useful idiots. They're the targets because they are useful idiots. I, and I know that this goes in, you know, talking about the Soviets and all of that. Well, you know, and Soviets is not really the point here that I'm going through. It's the Marxists and the Leninists. Whether the KGB really had such a plan, really had um, this type of program in place, or whether somebody saw this and went, hey, that's actually a good solid plan and did it themselves. It doesn't matter who did it. Just like what we see today. Again, where the left was trolled by people on 4chan that the OK symbol was actually a symbol that represented white supremacy. And the left adopted it, implemented that, and has now pushed that forth to what? The Anti-Defamation League or the ACLU or one of those organizations has officially classified it as a hate symbol and the media goes after anybody who flashes the OK sign as a white supremacist. Uh, Perfect example, the Jeopardy contestant. He he did the OK symbol or really kind of the three-point symbol to indicate that he's a three-time winner of Jeopardy. And then he got booted off because they attacked him saying, hey, that was white supremacy. The left didn't develop that themselves. They just saw someone else developed it, determined it was useful, and went ahead and implemented it. Okay? Now, I happen to believe that, you know, this may have gotten started uh, as part of a Soviet program, but I'm sure that this has taken off on a life of its own, seeing today's modern Democrat Party, where the Soviets are probably going, wow are the Marxists and the Leninists going, wow, this was more effective than we could ever have possibly dreamed. And I'm sure what they forgot to factor in to what they were doing, you know, the Marxists and Leninists, what they forgot to factor in is the American competitive spirit. If you can find a way to monetize it, the your enthusiasm and your promotion and how far and wide you can spread it, is beyond belief and the competition once you learn how to monetize victimhood and victimization the competition to try and find new ways in order to claim yourself to be a victim and monetize that to make money off of being a victim 
has caused what this to explode beyond anything any Marxist or Leninist over the world thought it could possibly accomplish. Oh, man. But going through here and taking a look at everything that they did, right? they needed something for the rest of us. While they were targeting the useful idiots in order to be able to get their Marxist-Leninist view started in the culture, they needed the rest of us distracted. You know, they needed constant distractions for us so that just like uh, with the magician, the sleight of hand, getting you to look over here where the real action is over here. And that's what the Democrats do today with a lot of their, you know, cultural wars, you know, a lot of their, you know, engagement and racism, bigotry, and all of that is to create a distraction over here. So we're not paying attention to what they're doing over here. And they go through and they create these distractions. And of course, they'll target mostly the leftists, you know, who will who are easily distracted as well, you know, the lower level leftists, in order to try and get the rest of us to respond. Why would they be more susceptible to manipulation? I just mentioned that because, you see, a, a person who is too much involved in, 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 in introspective meditation, you see, if you carefully look what, what Maharishi Mahesh Yogi is teaching to, to Americans, is that all, most of the problems, most of the burning issues of today can be solved simply by meditating. Don't, don't, don't rock the boat. Don't get involved. Just sit down, look at your navel and meditate. And the things, due to some strange logic, due to cosmic vibration, will, will, will settle down by themselves. This is exactly what the KGB and Marxist-Leninist propaganda wants from Americans, to distract their opinion, uh, attention, and mental energy from real issues of the United States into a non-issues, into a non-world, non-existent uh, harmony. Obviously, it's more beneficial for the Soviet aggressors to have a bunch of duped Americans than Americans who are self-conscious, healthy, uh, physically fit, and alert to, to the reality. To keep us distracted, to keep us focused on ourselves and not pay attention to what's going on around us. Hmm. Have you ever heard a leftist say, it doesn't matter about the truth, it, it's what my truth is to have them self-absorbed, only looking at themselves. <laughs> Heck, technology today. You know, having everybody just focused only and solely on their screen, taking pictures of themselves for Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that wasn't the Soviets or the KGB. That is something we just did to ourselves. You know, that was just, you know, something that was beneficial to all the Marxists and Leninists. You know, our phones keeping us distracted so they don't have to really put a whole lot of effort into coming up with new ways uh, to try and keep us distracted. But also, though, take a look at the media. The media stories that they run, how they try to go off and they push all these false narratives about police shootings. You know, we see it all the time. They come out and there is a police shooting and they filter it out for police shootings that fit a racial narrative. And then they go off and they push that. And what happens? The left goes on the march. They go on towards violent rioting and all of that. And what happens? The right we go through and we try to figure out what actually happened. We want to go through and examine the evidence. And so we're distracted on there. And then, you know, we get more evidence, more body footage, and more information that completely debunks the narrative of the left. 
And then we spend all of our mental attention, all of our focus, all of that going through and debunking, responding, and, you know, trying to get the truth out there, right? Meanwhile, what is happening? There is something passing through the school system that we don't uh, notice because we're distracted with the police shooting. The legislation that is getting passed where they put in, uh, you know, what is that, thousand-page bills, you know, and they try to bury key instrumental uh, items in there to try and, you know, take over, you know, some some business, some industry, uh, try and push uh, more Marxist-Leninist views, try to expand the authority of government, and they're doing all of that over here while we're distracted trying to go through and debunk all the left's narrative of police shootings here. The constant distractions, you know, the shiny little objects, and then the whole, it does, it's what your truth is, you know, why the left is so focused on examining their feelings as well. Are you going to argue with that? Are you going to dispute that? Take a look at all the other distractions. When we take a look at all the talks about COVID and then we find out that, you know, there was, what was it, that some type of light thing or whatever that they were, uh, that somebody had promoted as being able to help combat COVID. And then the media attacked them. And what was our energy on the media's attack? You know, our hydroxychloroquine is probably a better example of that. Trump pushed it. The media went off and started attacking it. And it didn't matter that there were studies that actually supported it. We wanted more information, and we were talking about how the initial studies showed some promising results and how it was being used to help treat COVID patients. And then the media attacked it. The media attacked it, said it was dangerous, you know, pushing false information. Did that whole person who... Uh, down some fish tank cleaner or, you know, put fish tank cleaner in her husband's drink and then he died and then she tried blaming it on uh, Trump and saying he thought it was good because the name sounds similar and then the media attacked that as Trump told them to do this and then we had to focus on debunking the narrative, hey, that's actually fish cleaner and it's not even the same product, you know, and all of that and we were going off and we're distracted by all of that. Meanwhile, what was going on? They were expanding their authority. They were going through and engaging in shutdowns, violating the Constitution, uh, disrupting our civil rights. And they were able to do so because they created that momentary distraction. So it's that constant tactic of distract, 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 as well as divide and conquer, while having the useful idiots with some influence being able to go through and push, you know, ideology and everything. And it's all about distraction, going after the useful idiots and to try and push uh, ideology, our new ideology onto us, our adversaries ideology onto us in a format in which you can, in which the competing ideology of our country historically is left out, can be censored out and blocked from view. All right. And so we can see this pattern by pattern. And and there's a whole other uh, interview or a whole other video that I'm going to be going through point by point. I'm talking about, you know, uh, some of the tactics of what they did, right? You know, again, the video is what they did and how they did it. And this is only covering a fraction of the what and the how. 
All right, there's another video that further explains that, another uh, that went through that I'm going to be getting through a little bit later on. So we go through here, and we can see today that what was being said in 1984, we can see the results of today. All right? Now, he said there is a four-step plan, if you remember, all the way back to uh, the beginning of the very first video. He said there's a four-step plan, and so far we've really only covered step one. So what are steps two through four? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at that. The next stage is destabilization. This time, Subverter does not care about your ideas and the patterns of your consumption. Whether you eat junk food and get fat and flabby, it doesn't matter anymore. This time, and it takes only from two to five years to destabilize a nation, uh, it's, what, what matters is essentials, economy, foreign relations, defense systems. Uh, and you can see it quite clearly that in some areas, uh, in such sensitive areas as, as uh, defense and economy, uh, the uh, influence of Marxist-Leninist ideas in the United States is absolutely fantastic. I, I could never believe it 14 years ago when I landed uh, in this part of the world that the process will go that fast. Uh, the next stage, of course, is crisis. It, it, it may take only up to six weeks to, to bring a country to the verge of crisis. You can see it in, in Central America now. And after crisis, with a violent change of, of power, structure, and economy, you have so-called the period of normalization. It may last indefinitely. Normalization is a cynical expression borrowed from Soviet propaganda. When the Soviet tanks moved into Czechoslovakia in 68, Comrade Brezhnev said, now the situation in brotherly Czechoslovakia is normalized. This is what will happen in the United States if you allow all these schmucks to bring the country to crisis to promise people all kind of goodies and the paradise on earth, uh, to, to destabilize your uh, economy, to eliminate the principle of free market competition, and to put a big brother government in Washington, D.C., with uh, benevolent dictators like Walter Mondale, who will promise lots of things, never mind whether the promises are fulfillable or not. He will go to Moscow to kiss the bottoms of, of new generation of Soviet assassins. Never mind. He will create false illusions. So let's go ahead and address that actually in reverse order. First off, the, re the normalization. Normalization. Have we heard that statement? You know, the new normal. Right? We've heard that statement made in the past. Or how about this? Joe Biden, a return to normal. A return to normal feels good, doesn't it? It doesn't matter that he's engaged in the most radical, extreme views, ideology, the most radical policies that we have ever witnessed. The media promotes that as a return to normal. He engages in actions that damages the United States and benefits Russia. Oh, no, no, no. Don't worry. This is just normal. You know, we've returned to normal. We've calmed down. Trump, he was the abnormal. He was the anomaly. Now we've returned to normal. And have you never noticed that a return to normal, according to the media, is when a Democrat is in charge and our standing in the world and our influence in the world shrinks. The more we're damaged, the more they celebrate. The more prosperous we are, the more outraged they are. And the more radical and extreme the left gets, 
the more they push out the word normal, return to normal, the new normal. And then we go through and take a look at the defense, weakened defense. Have you seen the CIA and military's woke recruitment videos? Is it centered around national defense, preparedness? Is it centered around anything related to defense? No, 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 no. Instead, it's this touchy, feel-good recruitment videos playing to woke identity groups. As if somebody going off and talking about who they sleep with, you know, their you know, sexual preferences has anything to do with military readiness and preparedness. Or, you know, going off and talking about an all-inclusive, safe environment, the new intelligence community. Yeah. Hmm. The weakening of defense. Hmm. What about foreign relations? Have you ever noticed when the Democrats are in office, our relationships with our traditional allies, such as Israel, weakens? You know, we go off and we see and major attacks on Israel. And what happens? If a Democrat's in office, they go off and they kind of condemn Israel. We see that from Ilhan Omar. We see that from AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Bernie Sanders, and the list goes on and on from the left. We see a complete abandonment of our traditional allies. And instead, they back the aggressors, the terrorist regime that's only objective is the complete and total destruction of Israel. They keep saying two-state solution, two-state solution, but the two-state solution has been rejected by Hamas and the Palestinians. Well, I'd say the Palestinians. Um, I'm sure some of these uh, predated Hamas. Five different times they've been offered their own separate independent state to govern themselves five times and they rejected it because they're not interested in a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution. And that one state involves the elimination of Israel. Now, Joe Biden has come out and has stated that Israel has a right to defend himself. You know, but let's face it, Joe Biden, you know, being much older, hasn't gone through the second and third wave level of indoctrination. So he isn't completely out there against Israel, but he is going back out there and restoring funding to the terrorist group that is attacking Israel, a weakening of our allies. And what do we see? We see him going for Iran, right? And how he's trying to go off and make, ensure that they get billions and billions of dollars in sanction reliefs, giving them the ability to develop a nuclear weapon, all while they're chanting death to America financing their ability to attack us, which covers both foreign relations, supporting our enemies and attacking our allies, and weakening our defense, making us vulnerable to attack. It's really sad what we're seeing here. And then the economy. My God, the economy. When the Democrats are in charge, or even when they're not in charge, even when the Republicans are in charge, you know, you take a look at the Democrats. They are out of control in their spending. And even when Republicans come into office and they try to restrain uh, spending, what happens? The Democrats obstruct any attempts to restrain spending. They go off, they spend, they spend, they spend. And what does that do? It causes inflation. It causes the cost of living to go up. 
it deflates the value of our currency, which uh, happens to engage in economic harm. But what else happens when a Democrat is in charge? They engage in mass regulation, things that are damaging to the economy, trying to regulate the businesses to a point where they can't operate or at least not operate in any affordable fashion. So as they continue to implement more and more regulations and take more and more control over our private sector, prices go up. That also affects us on the economic level. I mean, we can go through here, example after example, how they keep targeting these areas, and we were warned about it. I mean, take a look at inflation right now. Everyone's going out there and suddenly starting to warn, hey, 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 if the government keeps spending the way they are and the Democrats want to continue increasing spending, we're going to have huge inflation problems. I mean, even going through right now, look at how much uh, lumber has gone up. Take a look at how rapidly the price of gas has gone up. Now, some of you are going to go, well, that's a gas shortage. Yeah, how did that gas shortage happen? Hmm. Is there some defense issue going on there? Just at least on the cyber side? Hmm. But then go through and take a look at gas prices under Obama and then gas prices under Trump. Even with all the spending the way it is, you would assume that it would have gone up under Trump as spending went up, but no, 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 no. And so, I mean, we can go through example after example, and they go, well, that you don't understand the economics and what uh, inflation is and all of that. And it's like, no, 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 I actually do. You don't understand. Because you're talking about inflation, but you're not talking about the cause of inflation. You don't want to talk about the cause of inflation because then people might start paying attention to government economic policies, all of which are damaging. And as we go through and we take a look uh, as we are going to be approaching $30 trillion in debt. And what is the left doing? They're wanting to spend more. The universal basic income, remember that being promoted? Universal basic income. No explanation of where the money for that's going to come from. Tax the rich, tax the rich. You want to destabilize an economy, tax the rich out of uh, into poverty, right? Tax them, you know, 90, 95% of everything they earn and they won't be able to afford keeping the businesses running, paying employees, creating jobs, economic destabilization. And of course, they always promote all of this extra spending and economic recklessness. They always promote it as benevolent. You know that you know the government is going to be able to afford spending all the money in the world. You know that they can just keep printing without any negative consequences in order to provide you everything you need, universal basic income, you know, unlimited, you know, free housing, free electricity and utilities, free this, free that, all of that. And we'll discuss that a little bit more, but you understanding how damaging and destabilizing the economic policies are of the left. Okay, so now that we covered that, I want to get into another video. And yes, this video is even older as they go through and talk more about the tactics, the psychological tactics and that the left use and more about who they target. And this video comes out of 1960. And this is really gets to the heart of a lot of what's frustrating about all of this is that it's not like we weren't warned. People were raising red flags about exactly what was happening decades ago, and yet we're caught off guard and by surprise. 
that the left is has de-evolved, has become the radical, insane, you know, illogical morons that they are, we're surprised. But we've been warned about this as far back as the 1960s and even before that, what was happening, what the plan was. And now we're surprised after ignoring all the warnings, what has happened. It's just like what I was saying about the politicians at the beginning of this episode, how we in the conservative movement raised red flags. We were talking and screaming, hey, pay attention to the censorship going on on Facebook and Twitter and Google searches and YouTube. Pay attention to this. They ignored us. And now all of a sudden, now that it's so blatant out in the open and they're not you know, trying to do it quietly anymore, all of a sudden, they're surprised. You know, but we've been warning them. They just didn't pay attention. They didn't want to pay attention. Too much of a hassle to do anything about it. Okay, so let's go ahead and start taking a look at some of the tactics that the Leninists and Marxists use into right, a little more details. Now, the, one of the very first tactics that they use is not to engage in open warfare, but the first try to gain influence into what they consider to be the power centers of a culture. And what are the power centers? Well, I think this will explain it quite well. Joseph Kornfeder was one of the original charter members of the Communist Party in America. He joined in 1919. He received special training in Moscow and returned to this country dedicated to the cause of world communism. Then, like so many others, gradually he began to see through the intellectual deception of the communist promise. He broke away from the party and became an equally dedicated anti-communist. Now, in 1955, Joseph Kornfeder gave a speech in San Francisco. And I'd like to read to you one paragraph taken directly from the transcript of that speech. Kornfeder said, The true characteristics of the Communist Party are to be found not so much in its theories as in its methods of organization. Keep in mind that they are applying a new concept of warfare, the concept of conquering a country from within. How do you conquer a country from within? You conquer it by capturing the organizations that operate inside the country, a labor union, a farm organization or newspaper guild, a teacher's association, a political club, a government agency, etc., are considered as power centers. The sum total of these organizations is the sum total of power. The Communist Party organizes inside of these organizations group by group. To fight them effectively, one has to do the same thing in reverse. Mere resolution passing can't cope with that sort of an enemy. End quote. Of course, that's certainly true. Mere resolution passing, merely declaring loudly that we're against communism, cannot cope with that sort of an enemy. Okay, okay, so here's where I'm going to go off and address the last part. Mere resolution passing and taking influence into a government agency. How many times have we seen whereby the left, the Marxists, have gained so much influence in the government that they use and abuse their power to target their ideological opponents. Remember the IRS targeting of conservatives. Remember the FBI's 
investigation of Trump, Crossfire Hurricane, the Mueller probe. Right? And then we find out it's all baseless. Or let's say in uh, social media, you know, Facebook, Twitter, they engage in political targeting, viewpoint bias. Right? Then what happens? We have a hearing on it. And all we hear from uh, the conservatives is, yes, they they go out there and they have their moment. They have their, you know, highlight clip where they were really taking them to task and saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, and then they do nothing. They just loudly declare, you need to stop this. This is wrong. This cannot happen. This is blatant corruption, and they do nothing about it whatsoever. So you need more than mere resolution passing. Now, taking over the power centers, we just briefly touched on government, government agencies, and not only using and abusing their power to target their political and ideological opponents, as I have already pointed out a few, but also to undermine their ideological opponents when they are in power. How many stories did we hear during the Trump administration? where Trump issues an order and somebody within uh, an agency rebels and refuses to follow. I mean, there was already a story just recently where Trump issued an order to withdraw troops from overseas, and the generals just came out and said, nah, nah, we're not going to follow that order. We're not going to obey you. We, we, We veto your withdrawal order. And this is coming from a group of people who don't have veto power over the president. The president is their boss. And they refused to withdraw troops. How did they get so openly defiant? Numbers. Filling the ranks. And we've seen this. How many people from inside the government went off and and went off to leak, or, you know, leak stories in order to try and damage and undermine Trump? Now, most of those stories ended up being false. In fact, almost every last one of them turned out to be false. The anonymous sources from inside the government. Now, we're going to take the assumption that those sources were legitimate, or at least were were actual people that existed and did work inside the government. Although maybe their ranks and what type of position they held was inflated. But assuming that the media didn't just make something up and attribute it to an anonymous source... But if there was an actual person, well, then they were using their position in government to spread misinformation and disinformation to the media, all too willing to gobble it up in order to undermine President Trump. We've saw plenty of that happen during the Trump administration. But then we also take a look at the other power centers, the teachers union. Now, this isn't the first time we've covered how education system is one of the most critical organizations most critical function for Marxists and Leninists to get their hold of because there they have a captive audience that must regurgitate everything that they say or get a bad grade and that they control the narratives and are able to prevent any counter narratives to the Marxist Leninist views. But then, of course, we go through and we take a look at all the other, you know, the unions and all that, all the other places that was mentioned there that has become ideologically one way. All leftists with Marxist-Leninist views by those who fill up the ranks. And how they engage in, once they get into the position to determining the hiring, 
how they engage in political censorship in their hiring practices in order to ensure that they maintain and grow their ranks, power, and influence inside of those organizations. And they oust anybody once they reach a certain level who doesn't agree with their views. We've seen it all the time. And as far as the education system, we might as well also talk about how they go after uh, running for school board so that they can have even more influence and control over the curriculum. In fact, uh, a recent article that has come out started talking about, and I pointed it out on, uh, what was it, one or two episodes ago, about how the uh, teachers' unions overplayed their hand uh, during the coronavirus trying to make the adoption of 1619 and critical race theory into the curriculum as a condition for reopening the schools and going back full-time. Hmm. And you notice, you know, we're talking about from 30 years ago and from, you know, uh, 50 years ago about how these organizations that today are all ideologically leftist, espousing Marxist views, were the targets of Marxists and Leninists. And but back then, when these were first coming out, there wasn't uh, one ideological slant. There was a mix of ideology. There were conservatives in unions, you know, or union organizations that in conservative industries, but not anymore. Not anymore. They've all been shifted and anybody who was conservative has been pushed out and now they are all ideologically leftists. I mean, you also go through and you take a look at how they're trying to push Black Lives Matter curriculum into the schools. Black Lives Matter, which had openly admitted on their own website. I assume they may have taken it down by now. But who knows, maybe it's still there, where they openly admit that they are Marxists. And they're being pushed into the school system. How do they get into the school system? The unions and the school boards. So you understand the importance of the power centers, those that control information, especially the media. The media is a huge target because they control what you read, what information gets disseminated, and how it's disseminated, the narrative, the spin. You control the information, you control the people. Okay, so there is another issue here that I want to be able to get on, and that is the reason why when Marxists try to gain power, especially in government, trying to get more elected offices in a democracy, they always go through and they talk about benefits, increasing benefits, government handouts, We're going to give you this. We're going to give you universal basic income. We're going to give you free health care. We're going to give you free this and free that. Well, there's two reasons why the Marxists and the Leninists go off and they make that claim. One, giving out free stuff. Well, who doesn't want free stuff? It makes it very easy. You're playing on the greed. I want something for nothing. And it's an easy sell. And then what does your opponent have to do? They have to come out and try and explain, hey, that's a bad idea. We can't afford to just give you anything. And then, of course, they engage in class warfare. Oh, no, we only have to tax the rich just a little bit more. Because if you can go off and convince people that you're just going to give them free stuff, whether or not you actually do once you're in office, 
or maybe you do one of the things. You know, that is not the point. The point is you're bribing the electorate with the idea of free money, which is very hard to counter psychologically, very hard to counter. Hey, this person wants to give me free stuff. What do you want to do? I just want to make it easier for you to, you know, keep more of the money you earn through hard work. So if I vote for this person, it's hard work, but I get to keep the money of my hard work. This person, I don't have to do anything and he's just going to give me the money anyways. Okay, and that and that is very powerful as far as a tool goes for the Marxists and the Leninists. But there is more than just electoral politics involved as far as the politics behind just trying to promise you free everything. It's about dependency, right? And I think it's best put in this clip. To resist a tyranny... You must be independent of that tyranny for your subsistence. If the government provides your food, your clothing, your shelter, your education, your job, your medical care, your retirement, then the government controls you most effectively indeed. Yes, if you are completely dependent on a government and that government becomes tyrannical and you start speaking out against them, what happens? Well you get cut off, right? You get cut off from income. You get cut off from your housing. You get cut off from food. Next thing you know, you're broke, homeless, and starving in the street. Pretty easy to crush any uprising against your authoritarian power when you control everything that anybody needs in order to survive. They'll quickly die off and starve and be a warning sign to everybody else. Fear. Plus, if you don't vote for them, if you don't elect them, what happens? They're going to say, vote for me, or you're going to end up uh, homeless, starving in the streets. We hear that all the time. Think about what they do with Social Security. Those who did not do any savings for their retirement and plan uh, their retirement based off of the idea of Social Security, what happens? The Democrats go out there every single election cycle and say, hey, they're going to take away your Social Security. They're going to take away your only means of being able to afford to live, you know? And how is that program operated or controlled? By the government. Social security recipients are 100% dependent on the government. And so you get politicians out there threatening that they're gonna take away their only means of living and surviving unless they vote for them. The politics of fear, the way to keep people in line, in control. Name one election cycle where the Democrats didn't go out there and threaten the old that if they didn't vote for them, they would lose their Social Security check. They would end up homeless, broke in the streets. You know, name one election cycle. Why? Because they know the people are completely dependent on them. Now, those who went off and actually saved up on their own through IRAs and 401ks, the, the threat of taking away their Social Security is not as severe because they are not dependent on the government or they're not wholly dependent on the government. The less dependent you are on the government, the more you can speak out against them because you don't have the fear of them taking away your only means of survival. You can't be resistant to tyrants if you are 100% reliant on tyrants for your ability to live. And I believe that point is irrefutable. It's irrefutable. 
I mean, take a look at all the other socialist Marxist countries out there of the world. I mean, why do you think no one rose up uh, against uh, the Soviet Union or why it is it took so long for people to actually rise up? I mean, think about the Soviet Union was around for a very long time. But even after the collapse of the Soviet Union, look what took its place. You still have Russia. You know, people are still oppressed. There really isn't a democracy. They got a fake democracy where they pretend to let people vote. Right? I'll I'll refrain from a joke here. But you, I mean, you take a look at that and you wonder how are the people in China? What's keeping them from rising up? You know, what keeps them from rebelling against an overly oppressive government? Well, one is the indoctrination system of the schools, of course, but another is the dependency upon the government. You know, and, you know, the economy over there, you know, the wages being so low that they're stuck working all day, every day, so they don't really have time. You know, but why is it that with oppressive governments, you got such a small group of people able to control completely another group of people that outnumber them even 10 to 1? You know, now maybe 10 to 1 is an exaggeration or 5 to 1 or whatever. Dependency. That's what keeps them in line. Dependency and fear. Okay, but what happens? Why is it that, okay, you're going, well, this is all bad somehow. How is the government constantly going out, increasingly giving you something for nothing, a bad thing? It seems like they want to be able to solve all my problems for me. Well, here is another irrefutable video. Another video uh, from the same person. The, the rest of the videos will be uh, from this particular you know, presentation, interview. Um, anyways, this is irrefutable. The left won't be able to refute it, so they're just going to go ahead and try and attack this. But here's an irrefutable truth about government handouts and why they're so bad. All right, so here we go. Over 120 years ago, a French economist by the name of Frederick Bastiat wrote an essay entitled The Law. It contains one of the clearest and most compelling statements of political philosophy that you'll ever find. In straightforward language and logic, Bastiat proves beyond all doubt that the proper function of government is to protect the lives, liberty, and property of its citizens, but not to provide for them. To protect and not to provide. For in order to provide for some, first it must take from others. And once it has been granted the power to take from some and give to others, then it becomes the potential mechanism for what Bastet called legalized plunder. The control of that mechanism becomes a highly coveted tool by individuals and groups who wish to line their own pockets out of the taxes taken from someone else. Everybody wants in on the take. Businessmen clamor for tariffs and price-fixing laws so they can charge higher prices. And when the consumers discover that what's going on, instead of calling for the elimination of all such government favoritism, they merely start demanding that they get theirs, too. Labor unions clamor for minimum wage laws. Farmers nuzzle up to the trough and demand price supports. The unemployed want benefits. Families want apartments. Students want grants. Colleges want subsidies. The entire process spirals around and around until finally everybody is plundering everybody. 
And in the end, when taxes skyrocket to the point where there's nothing left to plunder, then the whole system collapses and the game is over. All that's left is the plundering mechanism itself, total government. And freedom is lost. And isn't that what we're seeing today? Politicians having gone through gaining power by promising free this, free that. And now we take a look at government spending. All the handouts, all the government spending on private groups, private organizations, labor unions, teachers unions, increased education spending going to the unions. All the, all that's going on. Hey, increased unemployment benefits. Hey, let's promote universal basic income as an idea. Hey, we got reparations that is being floated around and promoted. You see how as people have caught on to the idea through not only finding out what government was spending money on to private groups and organizations, but politicians willing because they want power, promising all this free stuff that it's no surprise that government is now nearly $30 trillion in debt. You think we can continue to do this, but people will continue to go off and go, I want this, I want that. We take a look at the you know expanded uh, unemployment, and yet there are places in the country where people are getting paid more to stay home than to go to work, even though they're suffering a labor shortage. Hmm. Now, I can't find anything that would refute what is going on here. In fact, we can even take a recent example here. This is exactly what happened in Venezuela. Venezuela, authoritarian dictator, gets into power, promising everybody free everything. Gets into power, money spend, money spend, 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 while also increasing the power and authority of government and you know people giving up their rights and freedoms in exchange for all these free goodies. And what happens? The economics of Venezuela totally collapse. There's no more money. The money is completely worthless. You got people starving in the streets. There's nothing left to plunder. There's nothing left to take from one person to give to another person. And all that's left is the big authoritarian government controlling every aspect of their lives. To which their ability to get out from under while they were able to slide in there peacefully, thinking everything was great, to get out of it is going to take fortitude to rise up in a rebellion to overthrow that authoritarian government. But as we've seen and taken a look at the world and world history, getting out of tyranny is hard. Sliding into tyranny, that's easy. Now, if I were to relate this, what we just saw about how the economics uh, or the economy collapses through the promotion of free stuff, you know, that the Leninists and Marxists say, yes, the government can afford to give you absolutely anything and everything continuously for free, and then the economy collapses. Well, if you go back and take a look at that first video, what do they talk about as one of the things that they target in stages two through four? Remember, economics foreign relations, defense. Well, this is them targeting the economics, destabilizing the economics of a country. Out of control spending until the complete and total economic collapse. And then what does that cause? Chaos, which I believe was step, what, three? The chaos, was that step three or step four? Uh, Anyways, when that creates chaos, as everything is collapsing, everybody's losing everything, everybody is panicking. It creates chaos, and then that's when the authoritarians make their last move, their final move, 
go in there and everybody's willing to surrender whatever they have left, which isn't much, just to be able to, you know, limit the pain and the suffering that they are now feeling. And then they'll go in and they'll create a police state, you know, a military state, a big authoritarian uh, government that controls everything. And then they'll go, a situation has now been normalized. We have taken care and we are solving the problem. Right. Right. You, you kind of see how this goes and why I kind of played uh, the interview from the 1980s before I went off and did this from the 1960s. But you have to understand that, right? Right. Now, as they go through here and we try and figure out, you know, more about how the Democrats became crazy and insane. You know, we also got to understand that it's basically the same way that Hitler was able to gain the power. You know, in addition to the Marxists and the Leninists going out there, you know, and targeting the power centers and the education uh centers, you know, and trying to go through the indoctrination and all of that. Yes, 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 yes. But you also got to understand, you know, how they manipulate the language, how they go off and make the promises, you know, the promises of free stuff as also to be able to get, you know, a political power in a democracy. But you got to understand, you know, what we are seeing here, the warning that we got you know, everyone wants to go off and make the comparison to Hitler. And, you know, I get it. I get it. I am just as frustrated with all the comparison to Hitler. But this isn't trying to call people Hitler. This is about understanding how Hitler got to power to begin with. You know, and how people took a look at all the promises of free stuff, you know, and trying to address, you know, a problem in their country. And that he was promising to you know, address that, but they never took a look at what he was going to put in its place. You know, the whole, please, please, whatever you do, do not look behind the curtain. So let's go ahead and examine that for a moment. And I'm going to go ahead and, you know, explain, have it explained by someone who was closer to the event by about mm, 50 years than I am you know, and has less of a distorted rewriting of history than us. So let's go ahead and see how Hitler got to power and compare that. Now, we think it's important to understand this because otherwise, in our zeal to overcome communism, the American people could be maneuvered unwittingly into replacing communism with merely another form of the same thing. In the 20s, the unsuspecting people of Germany became alarmed over the inroads being made in their country by domestic communism. And then Adolf the paper hanger came along and said, follow me, I'll get rid of communism for you. So they followed him, and he did get rid of communism. But he put in its place exactly the same thing, only under a different flag. The good people of Germany never stopped to ask what Hitler offered behind his anti-communist slogans and promises of welfare. Most of them had never read Mein Kampf, and of those who did, very few really knew what they were reading. They were unable to recognize those opposing jaws that always constitute tyranny, collectivism, and amorality. And so, in their zeal to avoid tyranny, and through their ignorance of the nature of tyranny, they were manipulated into tyranny. And it was all done through the democratic process. Remember, Hitler was voted into power. And of course, that is exactly right. 
That's how Hitler initially got voted into office. People looked at what he was promising to do, but they weren't taking a look at what he was implementing to replace it. The exact same thing, just rebranded. Now let's go ahead and take a look at parallels to today. For the last 20 to 25 years, the Democrats have engaged in the idea of calling everything racist to try and convince everybody that racism and white supremacy is on the rise. They try to claim everything. They go through and engage in deceptively edited videos or falsified narratives of any incident that they think could be used for propaganda purposes. They would go out there, especially into minority communities, talking about how white supremacy was on the rise. Of course, people not being fully versed in history had forgotten that the racism that once existed came from the exact political party that is now talking about how racism is on the rise and didn't find it at all ironic that they were claiming to be the only ones who could stop it. They would say, vote for me and we'll stomp out racism and white supremacy wherever it goes. We will create a more tolerant and inclusive society. And in the zeal to stop, to stamp out hatred, bigotry, and racism, no one ever took a look at what the Democrats were offering in its place, namely racism, hatred, and bigotry. So as the Democrats continue to gain power in areas to the point where they ended up having exclusive power in an area, total complete control, they implemented policies designed to promote and foster racism. Today, we call that critical race theory and the 1619 Project. And as time went on and people got older and as the race baiting had intensified, the perception started to become reality and that it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. After many, many years of marketing, we started seeing incidents of racism. But it wasn't a rise in white supremacy. It was a rise in people committing crimes or staging crimes for themselves, which I guess is not an actual rise in white supremacy. But we actually did start seeing a rise in hate crimes, only it wasn't white supremacy hate crimes. It was crimes and hatred and racism coming out of Black Lives Matter. We all saw the videos earlier this week of Palestinians attacking Jews in New York. The increase of hatred, racism, and bigotry, and anti-Semitism. We see uh, members of Democrat-controlled areas saying, we must take everything away from the white people. We must take everything. They must be forced to be subservient. Yes, we do see a rise in racism. We see the self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not white supremacy, but that doesn't matter to the left. They took a look and in their zeal to want to be more tolerant and inclusive, to stamp out the perception of racism in society, they never took a look at the policies and the changes to our education system. They never realized that they were replacing racism with racism, just under a different name. Replacing white supremacy with racism against whites. And they think this will create a more tolerant and inclusive society. Now, we could have showed them all the evidence in the world and it wouldn't matter because it was under the banner of anti-hate. It's under the banner now of being called anti-racism. What you call it is more important than what they actually do. 
Not that any evidence would matter anyways as a result of ideological subversion. We already know that no amount of facts, data, evidence, and science will ever convince them anymore that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. They're unable to process the data and information and come to rational, logical conclusions. All right, so you kind of see how what has gone on, how the Marxists and the Leninists were able to go through the Democrat Party. Why? Well, they were useful idiots, and they were able to go through. Now, the left also, and the Marxists and the um, Leninists, have a way to deal with people, people who they feel, uh, feel is betraying them, who should be a part of their ranks and turned against them, and people who are on the ideological opposite of them who have become inconvenient. And, well, after I go through and show this video, I'm not sure much explanation is needed or much example is needed to be provided, but I'll still provide some examples here. So let's go ahead and take a look at how they deal with traitors and those who are ideologically inconvenient. Some time ago, the Communist Party published this little booklet entitled A Manual on Organization. It contains their detailed plans for disciplining members, collecting dues, operating secret printing presses, organizing cells in factories, colleges, and farming communities. It even describes the function of a fraction, a unit smaller than the cell itself. A fraction can be composed of two or more communists within the same non-communist organization. Their task is to work together secretly for the purpose of gaining control of that organization, the very process described earlier by Joseph Kornfeder. Now, if you haven't read this, and of course most non-communists have not, then it's almost impossible to appreciate the degree to which communism depends on organization rather than ideology. But getting back to the subject of tactics, there's a particularly revealing passage back here on page 122. They're discussing how to handle former comrades who break away from the party, and particularly those who have the audacity to testify before congressional investigating committees. And here's what they say. There is only one proper method of exposing the stool pigeons, and that is mass exposure, creating and organizing mass hatred against these rats. One, photograph the spy and print his picture in leaflets and stickers. Spread this material in the place where the spy was operating. Two, organize systematic agitation among the workers where the spy was discovered. Three, mobilize the children and women in the block in the part of town where the stool pigeon lives to make his life miserable. Let them pick at the store where his wife purchases groceries and other necessities. Let the children in the street shout after him or after any member of his family that they are spies, rats, stool pigeons. Four, chalk his home with the slogan, so-and-so who lives here is a spy, etc. In 1943, the following directive was issued from party headquarters. All right, all right. Let me pause it right there for a moment, and then I'll go ahead and get back to it. All right, so that you can finish off with the rest of the tactic. The how to deal with traitors, those who defect from the organization and start speaking out against it. You know, the stool pigeon, they say. Well, we've seen that in plenty of examples t 
today from the left, how they use that exact same tactic. Think about Candace Owens for a moment. Now, she admits openly that in her youth, she used to have more Democrat and liberal-leaning views, and that she, over time, after studying the issues and all that, became conservative. You know, what was her initial channel? Uh, Red Pill Black, uh, I believe it was, where she started going out. She started speaking out against the Democrat Party, and as such, she started gaining popularity. She's gained attention. And now she is very much favored on the right. You know, she's had or has been part of multiple uh, conservative organizations, you know, and we follow her. And, you know, I've listened to her show and I like it. Um, I don't listen to everything, but all in all, I like it. I think she is pretty level-headed and has a good uh, head on her shoulders. But think about how the left treats her. You know, when she goes out there and she talks about the policy or the mentality of victimhood and then speaks out against that and uses the terms getting off of the plantation, the Democrat plantation, you know, talking about it mentally. And she goes through and cites all the ways in which the black community is basically being made subservient to the Democrats, right? When the left goes off and they talk about her, do they go off and talk about the examples, the evidence or the, you know, situations that she describes? Do they try and counter it with evidence of their own or try and go off and debate point by point? No, they don't do that whatsoever, do they? Instead, they attack her. They attack her uh, with such names as calling her a race traitor or a traitor to her gender or (laughs) a black white supremacist. And it's even gone so far that when she was in Capitol Hill hearings, being questioned, they tried to attack her as supporting and promoting white supremacy, right? So it's that very same tactic that was being read about, you know, back in the 1960s from a communist operation manual, where you don't try and hide from them, suppress them, or try and dodge and avoid them. You go for mass exposure, and instead of going for it point by point in a debate, you attack them characterly, and then you try to get harassment. So you go for the mass exposure, you know, instead of stool pigeon in this example, it's race traitor. And then unsurprisingly, after going through that and making her a target based on the idea that she's a race traitor and a supporter of white supremacy, what happens? Well, it wasn't that many years ago, you know, and it was during the Trump administration where leftists confronted Candace and Charlie Kirk at a restaurant and chase them out of there. And we have seen, you know, uh, examples of this many times, whether it's, you know, conservative women, you know, who are, you know, traitors to their genders, according to the left, because they're supposed to be Democrats because of their genitalia. You know, our other black uh, conservatives, you know, they go off and they label them and put them out on the left-wing media, of course, as race traitors and mark them for harassment. And then you see the left will go off and try and chase them out of restaurants, out of public squares. And uh, and it's not uncommon for a leftist to show up at someone's house, chanting and harassing them outside of their home, going off and maybe using paint or some other, you know, um, you know, tools to label them as racist 
you know, writing writing on their car that they're a racist. You know, dam- even going as far as to maybe damaging their property, unless they're a highly uh, up in the government. But you see how that very tactic is used today against those who were supposed to be loyal to the Democrat Party going out and speaking against the Democrat Party. But if you go off and talk about, you know, liberal women and you don't attack them on their character, you know, but you attack them on ideas, you go point by point through their ideas. What do they do? They say you're engaging in sexism. Amazing how that only goes one way. Now, there's more to this tactic. Uh, that they use. So that's how they deal with traitors. But how do they go off and they deal with people who become ideologically inconvenient, a thorn in their side, someone who, you know, you have no ability to debunk their claims and their evidence, which pretty much is about everything on every subject as the left can't debate anything because they have nothing. They have no substance to any of their statements or arguments. But how do they go ahead and deal with those people? Well, it goes on to explain even further. In 1943, the following directive was issued from party headquarters to all communists in the United States. It read, When certain obstructionists become too irritating, label them, after suitable buildups, as fascist or Nazi or anti-Semitic, and use the prestige of anti-fascist and tolerance organizations to discredit them. In the public mind, constantly associate those who oppose us with those names which already have a bad smell. The association will, after enough repetition, become fact in the public mind. Does this really need a whole lot of evidence to be presented right here on this show to back up? I mean, when was the last time you even saw a leftist be able to get through a single news program, radio show, or podcast segment without having to try and resort to labeling the Republicans that they are talking about as racist and white supremacists. I certainly can't remember it because they do it all the time because they can't debate the facts. But let's go ahead and provide just an example, just for the sake of argument here. And I'm going to go back and reuse the example of the OK symbol. So people started noticing that when Trump, uh, whenever he talks, he talks with his hands. And he has his little go-to, you know, his little comfort whenever he's on a roll. And that is he makes the OK symbol. And then that's when the people on 4chan started going off and saying, hey, look, this OK symbol, it actually means white supremacy. And did it in order to troll the left. And the left took a look at it, thought it was politically useful as a tool. After all, they were going off and trying to convince everybody that Trump was racist five times every segment of every show. And so they co-opted that trolling as something that was a legitimate thing. And then they started going off and talking about how the OK symbol is white supremacy and the left-wing groups that all claim to be anti-racism, anti-discrimination, anti-whatever right, who now come out and have added the OK symbol to their list of white supremacy symbols, white supremacy, you know, uh, talks and, you know, whatever. I mean, what was it, the ACLU, the Anti-Defamation League or FAIR? You know, one of them went out there and actually added it officially to the list of 
racism, you know, racist symbols, right? And then the media goes out there and goes, hey, you know, it's not just us who thinks it's racist. You know, it's not just us in case you think we're doing it just for political expediency. No, 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 no. We got this anti-hate group over here backing us up saying that this is officially a racist symbol. They've already confirmed it. And then they go back and show picture after picture of Trump making that gesture with his hands, as he does, uh, because it's kind of like a nervous tick whenever he's speaking. And then they decided to expand that and take a look at Republicans, all the public videos and pictures that were available to try and go through and talk about every Republican everywhere who ever made the okay gesture with their hands and then associated that with racism. Hmm. But then what happened? Well, we started taking a look at this and go, okay, but you on the left did it all the time too because it was just a gesture of okay. So we started showing all the leftist sports athletes who made that very same gesture as a celebration whenever they scored a point. In fact, we even went through and we found picture after picture of those who were demonizing as white supremacists anyone who made the okay symbol, who themselves, the ones who were doing the demonizing, are photographed, pictured, making the okay symbol with their hands. But of course, when you point out to them that they make the exact same hand gesture and symbol because it was universally recognized as just a signal of agreement, okay, you know, I agree. You know, it, it only works one way. If a Republican made that hand gesture, it was racist. It was white supremacy. See, it was code. See how much racism is on the rise? When they are in the pictures doing it, Oh, no, that's not a big deal. Oh, they're just trying to go off and try to do this whole, you know, uh, flop thing. They're just, you know, they, they dismiss it as just crazy, stupid nonsense. You know, but we see this every single time that they try to go off and associate their political opponents with racism, even for doing the very same thing that the people going off and making the claims that it's racist do themselves. Oh, man. And, of course, you know, they got to manufacture some racism, you know, to just keep the, you know, incidences fresh in the public mind. And this whole issue of manufacturing racism, and if you want an example of manufactured racism, Jesse Smollett, anybody? You know, <laughs> just if you haven't heard that, you must be living under a rock. You know, here it is. He's a celebrity of some show. I forget which one. I don't really care. Something about some singing. What was it? Um, Empire or something? Anyways, he went off and he claimed that he was attacked by some white supremacists who told him this was MAGA country. Of course, he was in a far left city, and there was a lot of details that were very strange about it. And throughout the investigation, what did we find? He paid his attackers to attack him so that he could stage a fake hate crime in order to attack President Trump to bolster his own career. But this is not a new tactic. Leftists have been caught time and time again staging fake hate crimes, damaging their own property with and the placement of swastikas and then putting MAGA under it or engaging in graffiti of such. Or damaging their own business or, you know, damaging a church or whatever, where they themselves do it, 
you know, put racist symbols on it and then put the slogan of their ideological opponent. We have seen this repeatedly happen over the years. Now, the media will come out there and they will go off and they'll report the story because it's made for them to report on it because it looks bad and it helps them associate their political opponents with racism. But when the story and the investigation continues and finds out that the hate crime was actually staged by the person claiming to be the victim of that hate crime, it disappears from the media. The correction is never issued, right? You never hear about it. Now, the problem with Jesse Smollett is he was, you know, a TV star, and so they stayed with it, and they then they tried to defend it. No matter how much evidence came out, they tried to defend and tried to suppress and tried to avoid talking about the evidence while they were trying to perpetuate and continue the myth that he was a victim of a hate crime. This tactic is nothing new. Right? This was still this was going on in the 60s. How they go about it, you know, has been updated for technological and communication changes, sure. You know, and staging it for video for the 24 hours news cycle, social media, yada yada yada. But this is not a new tactic, right? And so here is how they went off and they staged these fake hate crimes and all that in order to try and associate their ideological opponents with racism back in the 1960s. Well known that most of the thousands who attend each year are members of the John Birch Society. There are plenty of exceptions, of course, but it's widely thought of in Boston as an unofficial Birch Society convention. On the second day of the rally, which was held at the Statler Hilton Hotel, we came down from breakfast and discovered that someone had placed copies of this flyer on the windshield of every automobile within several blocks of the hotel. And how many additional thousands may have been distributed elsewhere in town, we have no way of knowing. Now, it looks exactly like the flyers the rally had put out the previous day. It was on the same color of paper, used the same kind of type. And whoever printed this even went so far as to photographically reproduce the official emblem for the rally. Now, it reads, Fifth Annual New England Rally for God, Family, and Country. Reveals mystery speaker, Sunday, July 2nd, Grand Ballroom, evening, 7 o'clock. And then, in bold type, it says, George Lincoln Rockwell exposes yellow niggers and red Jews. Now, you can imagine the impact on the innocent people who picked this off of their windshields or off the doorknobs of their homes. And you can imagine what they thought about the New England rally for God, family, and country and the people who attended. By the way, I'm sure there's no doubt in anyone's mind here, but just for the record, I suppose I'd better say it. This flyer was not printed by the New England rally for God, family, and country. <laughs> you see... Even though the means of communication has changed, the tactics remain the same. They've been going on for decades, which makes you wonder why is it that the Republicans are unprepared every single time for these attacks? Why haven't they been able to counter them by now? Hmm? It really baffles you. And then, you know, you go through and you take a look at this all the way from back in the 1960s, explaining these tactics, these Marxist-Leninist tactics. And every election cycle, the Republicans are left struggling, trying to figure out, always being on the defensive, having to answer for this, always taken by surprise whenever they're called out as being a racist for non-racist things. 
you know, and then it makes a lot more sense if they if it's taken them sixty years and they still haven't figured this out, and the Republicans still haven't figured out what, what the leftist tactics are, then is it any wonder that they are always taken by surprise? No matter how many red flags we put out there, no matter how much we sound the alarms about social media censorship, about critical race theory and sixteen nineteen project and all of that, that when the left finally comes out full bore, they're taken by surprise. They never see it coming. The tactics are the same, and the tactics are traditional Marxist-Leninist tactics. You know, they're not inherent to Americanism. They're not inherent to an uh, even the Democrat Party as far as its root and foundation in American society, to democracy, freedom, and liberty. These are classic Marxist-Leninist tactics adopted by the Democrat Party. And we've gone through, point by point, how the Marxists and the Leninists operate, how they infiltrate groups, how they radicalize them, how they go through and make it so that they cannot process, operate, or think in any rational manner, how they are immunized to facts and data that are basically in contradiction with their indoctrinated beliefs and then the tactics that they use in order to silence and go after their ideological opponents to get them to shut up while the Marxists and Leninists continue to progress. The language and manipulation control that they engage in. Now, after going through and seeing these videos, and there's just two more clips that I want to go through here, but after going through and taking a look at examples that we are seeing today coming from the left, things that were being talked about and warned about back in the 80s and the 60s, and then chart the progression of the left from where it was at that point in time to where it is today and how they're acting today, is there anybody out there who can actually you know, legitimately logically or evidentially disprove what I have come out with today, what I have been presenting here on this show. I don't think so. Now, of course, the left will try and dismiss this. They'll call me racist. They'll call me a conspiracy theorist. But they won't argue or talk about the facts. They'll try and claim this was debunked. You know, that these interviews were somehow discredited, but they won't be able to actually explain how it was discredited or what evidence they have to discredit it. They never can. They just make the statement and you're supposed to accept it without question. Now, one of the ironies of Marxists and Leninists is how they talk about, you know, equality and income, and yet those who are at the forefront of the movement are always rich, always living in lives of luxury, and are always at the heads of all the power centers. Why is that? Why is that? Well, just for fun, just for laughs, let's go ahead and take a look. As a fair means simply, let the people do it. Now let's get one thing straight right here. There are very few rich people in the John Birch Society. I wish we had more, but we don't. Most of us come from the 
lower and middle economic levels of the nation. In other words, we're part of that broad middle class that still works for a living and pays the taxes. Frankly, we would like to become rich if we could, and I think most of you would too. Even our socialist friends would like to be rich socialists. They don't object to wealth. It's just the other guy's wealth that bothers them. Yes, of course. The left, they love money. They love money. There's a lot of rich leftists. Hollywood types, everybody in the left-wing media, they're all rich. They love money. They love their lavish lifestyle. They just don't want you to have it. Because the more people who are rich and living lavish lifestyles, the more they feel it diminishes them. The more it deflates their own ego. Their ego and their ideology is dependent upon them being the rulers of society, looking down amongst all the people who are only in existence to worship them. This also explains why they are so feverish in wanting to destroy other people's wealth. You know, tax the rich, tax the rich. We must take everything from the rich. How dare they have this many houses? You know, what level of income is too much? Whatever level exceeds theirs. That is, you know, one way of putting it. And it also explains why whenever they talk about expanding government programs, how government is going to be able to provide for everybody, it's always based off of taxing the rich, except for themselves. Of course, they're going to make sure that based off of their lifestyle and their situation, there's going to be a lot of deductions so it doesn't actually take their money. It only targets the money of their ideological opponents. You know, they are very generous with other people's money, very stingy with their own. So you ever notice that? And you ever notice that when it came to Trump, they always wanted his tax returns, tax returns. And when they got some leaked uh, pages of his tax returns, it showed out that, or it turned out that Trump was more generous, more charitable, and gave more donations to charity than anybody running on the Democrat side, even though the Democrat side was all proclaiming how charitable and generous they are and how much they want to help the poor. And they gave almost nothing out of their own income because they're only charitable with other people's money because they want to destroy other people's wealth in order to make themselves feel better. Now, there is a definition of communism, definition of socialism, and all that that is very much in line. It is collectivism collectivism, and amorality, a complete lack of moral standings. And when you look at the left, they have no morals. They flip-flop all over the place to what is ever expedient for the day. And they go off and they promote the idea of collectivism. Society. Now, in their own personal lives, you know, at least those at the top, they're all about their own individual selves. But whenever they're out there in public and talking, they're only talking in collectivism, that there should be no individual. We're all one, they say. You know, that the government should be the one in control of absolutely everything, you know, and dictating where all the money goes. Whenever uh, the left gets called out for a problem, they blame society at large. The only time they acknowledge individualism is when they think that they can personally take credit for something for a re-election. Otherwise, it's all society. You know, pay, pay the fair share, you know, for social benefits, the benefit of all in the country. They never talk about individualism 
individuals' efforts, individuals' actions and decision-making. No, they act in a herd mentality, group mentality. They have lost the capacity for individual thought, which is why, or one of the many reasons, why facts and data never penetrates through them. Not only through the cultural subversion, but because they can't think for themselves. You present them with facts and data, and they have a blank stare. They're, and they look up, waiting for those in the media to tell them what to think. Okay, so that's it uh, for this particular episode. It was much longer than what I normally do, and I'll be honest, uh, after this, I'm probably going to take most of the rest of the week off. I'm going to take, you know, Wednesday and Thursday off unless something big breaks, all right? Uh, because I went through, you know, uh, cutting up clips. Originally, I was going to go through and put in a bunch of news articles and a lot of video clips, you know, showing the left as they are today, you know, and that's what took me a long time to go ahead and get this prepared if you were following me on the audio podcast. But then I went around and I got to thinking, one, I don't want to make an actual documentary. I don't have the time or the budget in order to do so. But also I went off and I thought, man, all these examples, critical race theory, transgenderism, 1619, the left, uh, making sure to call everybody and anybody who disagrees with them racist and all that. None of this is new. We see it all day, every single day. Right? Do I need an article for something that we have known happening all day, every single day for years? I mean, it's pretty much all public knowledge. But the thing is, we address and we try and talk about every individual aspect as it is happening, but we never go off and talk about it in the much larger picture, much larger scale, and in its historical context. And that's what I wanted to go through and point out today about how the left has become so radical, so extreme, so violent, so absolutely nuts and crazy. Okay, so I want to thank you so much for watching this on uh, on um, video. You know, whether you're watching on BitChute or Rumble or somehow managed to find this on YouTube. If you have been watching this on YouTube, I probably should have told you at the beginning. Look in the links in the description below to be able to, you know, follow me over there on Rumble. I will take the audio from this video and post it up on my podcast. And if you're uh, watching the video, thumbs up, comment, uh, subscribe, share. Let's try and make this go viral and see how the left tries to react. And of course, if you're listening on the audio version of this, you know, subscribe if the if you haven't already. Leave me ratings and reviews and share this on social media. Let's go ahead and get all of this. You know, the whole big picture highlight of what the Democrat Party is today and how they got there. Because you cannot defeat somebody if you do not understand them. You know, what is it, Sun Tzu? He may not have actually been that great of a military leader, but at least his writings and philosophies made a lot of sense and is good practical advice. You got to know your enemy if you plan to defeat them. And the problem with so many at the leadership of the Republican and conservative movement is that they don't know and understand their opponents. They know they're crazy. They know uh, that they you know, lack morals, but they don't fully understand 
how the Democrat Party came to be what it is today and where it stems from. Okay, so thank you so much, and I will be back again soon.